How great is that this morning, eh? Are you blessed? Man, I so blessed by uh, everything that's happened in the service. So encouraged by the testimonies of our young people. There's some good theology in there. Were you hearing the gospel? Man, oh man, that's great. Um, can I say to you, if you're a follower of Christ, you put your trust in him and you haven't been baptized yet, do it. It's not optional. I know it's scary. We'll help you. We'll walk you through it. But uh, just ask that God would stir this water again and again as we walk with him and as new people come to faith in Jesus and they declare their faith publicly. Well, here we are in 2017. I don't know, uh, you know, some of you who, who, who were born after 2000, you know, uh, it doesn't mean a lot to you, but thinking about 2017, when you're as old as I am, man, I, that was like, that would never happen, and here we are, and time keeps going. You know, over the years of my pastoral ministry, I have conducted scores and scores of funerals. Um, I, I have to count them sometime, but I mean, I don't know, maybe 150, I don't know, something like that. I've done a lot of funerals anyway. I've I stood with families in very difficult times uh, in their life as they've laid to rest a loved one. And um, occasionally, I would get a call from the funeral home. Uh, they would have had somebody who had passed away, and uh, they maybe weren't a churchgoer then, and they wanted a service for a member in their family, and maybe somewhere in their history they had the same kind of denominational connection, and, and so the odd time I've received a call from a funeral director, could, could you help out a family and do a service? And uh, on one of these uh, occasions, uh, I was called to do a service for an older gentleman, and uh, I didn't know him at all, so I met with him and his family one evening in their home. And uh, there's one thing that it's important to me, and that is in, in a funeral. I, I, just, I think every funeral should be unique and tailored to that person and whoever they are. We want to celebrate their life. And, and so I don't know this person at all, so I need some help in talking with family members and and coming to appreciate who this person was so we could do something that would honor their memory. So I sat down um, with their family and I began to ask questions. And I said, tell me, tell me about your dad. Tell me about your grandpa. And Like, I'm getting nothing. I'm getting nothing. And it will, what words would you use to describe him? Um, what was special in your relationship? And I'm, I've got nothing. I got nothing. Here's all I got. He really liked to bowl. That's all I got. His life was summed up by his family, those closest to him. He really liked to bowl. Now tell me, what do you do with that in a funeral service? Bob really liked to bowl. Bob had a beautiful blue ball. He polished that ball. Bob had a, he had a leather case for that ball. Bob would always be early for bowling. Bob, at one time, bowled 232 points. It was his best. I mean, what do you do with that, right? 
And I thought, man, this is tragic in my estimation that you come to the end of your life and you ask the family, tell me something significant about your dad. And all you can get is, he liked to bowl. To me, it was so sad. His legacy was, he liked to bowl. Let me ask you a question. What's the legacy you're going to leave? What's the mark that you're going to leave when you leave this world, as we all will at some time? Imagine with me that, that you have died, and you're sitting and listening to a funeral service for yourself. There'll be some people, people that may speak about you in that service. They may, uh, maybe a family member or a co-worker or, or somebody who was a friend. And, and I want to ask you, what would they say about you? I mean, not the kind of stuff. I mean, I've been to funerals where there's, there's a, you know, a, just a perverted, terrible old person. And in a funeral service, he's made out to be like the greatest saint that ever lived. And, you know, everybody, everybody knows it's a lie. I mean, with, with integrity, if people were to talk about your life, what would they say about you? What would be the legacy that they would leave? Not something sugar-coated, but something really real. It's sobering to think about, isn't it? The truth is that, that all of us will die, and the vast majority of us will have some kind of service of celebration of our life. And what will people say about you? In what way would you have touched their life? Socrates made the statement that the unexamined life is not a life worth living. And so I want to challenge us as the kind of in the front end of 2017 to ask this question. To pause and examine our lives and say... What is my life all about, and what, what am I living for, and, and, and do I need to stop and pause and, and maybe think of a course correction for my life? See, too often we can live our lives kind of on default and, instead of by design. It's just like whatever's happening to us, like we just, we just slip along without thinking much um, carefully or, or integrally about who we are and where we're going. And I thought it would be good for us just to step back for a moment this morning and think about our lives in that way. And what are we going and what are we giving our lives to? There was an excellent book quite a number of years ago um, by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And um, in that book, habit three is this. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Think of where you want to go. Think of what you want to be. Start with with that place and then work yourself backwards to say, all right, what do I need to do on this this course of my life to achieve what I would like to achieve um, in my life? How do you leave a legacy? I think it causes us to to pause and think about who we are. And... um, I would, I would maybe edit Covey's dictum for us as Christians in saying this. What is God's design for our lives? What is the legacy that God wants us to leave? You see, you can give your life to climbing the ladder of success feverishly. 
and finally achieve that and get to the top of that ladder and find out you put the ladder against the wrong wall. You've given yourself your whole life to climbing that ladder to find out that really wasn't where you should be going. In the grand scheme of things, uh, some of us may live lives that are and pursue things that are inconsequential, ill-placed, things of minor importance. How tragic to come to the end of our life with a sense of regret that what we've given ourselves to, what we spent our energy on, was really trivial and negligible of consequence. He sure loved to bowl. What a terrible summary for a life. I find it instructive that Jesus comes to the end of his life. He has this last time with his followers just before he goes to the cross. And he says to the Father, I'm ready to go home. I've done everything you've wanted me to do. What an incredible thing. I mean, Jesus didn't, he didn't teach every person. He didn't have everybody converted and becoming a follower of him. He didn't heal every person. And yet he could say before the Father, I've finished what you wanted me to do. What does God want you to do? How does he want you to live? It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul came to the end of his life and he reflects on what he had done and how he'd lived his life and the priorities that he had, the things that drove his life. And when he summed it all up and, and examined it, he was satisfied, he was content how he'd invested his life. He wasn't perfect. I mean, he, he had, a, he had a, a poor start in life. I mean, he was, he was trying to kill Christians. He was on a mission to kill Christians until God got a hold of him and, and brought him uh, to himself. But as he looks back at himself, he was satisfied. When he looked over his life, he, he could make... Uh, a good determination on it. And in fact, we listen to his words. Uh, we hear uh, him as he confronts his imminent death. He's on death row. He, he's just waiting for the executioner uh, to die at the hands of a Roman executioner. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says these words. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. What he was saying is, in, 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 the, in the process of offering something, and his life was offered to Christ, at the end of the offering, as, as everything is burning on the altar, they would take and they would pour out some wine as the final, final part of, of that offering, of that sacrifice. And, and Paul says, well, the time is here. Like, I'm already, they're, they're pouring out. It's all over for me. It's, it's done for me. Um, and, and, and he says, it's time for my departure. And that's really a, a really colorful term in the original language. It, it, it's like weighing anchor. It's, it's like unloosing the boat and, and ready to head out. It's like pulling up the tent pegs and moving on. And this is how he saw his time. It, it was a time for his departure. He was leaving this earth. He was heading to go to be with God. And as he looked back over his life, as he surveyed it with with, with all of what he did, he could make this statement. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
He looked back over his life and he could say with a measure of satisfaction, it was a struggle. It was a fight at times, but I fought the good and the noble fight. I struggled against opposition, but I kept in. I finished the race and the race is like a marathon. It goes and goes and and some people start the race, but not everybody finishes the race. And he said, I was able to finish the race. I kept going through the difficulties and through the t- trials. And, and uh, I, I crossed the finish line. And he said, I've kept the faith. I've been true to God. I didn't lose my faith with all of that stuff. Some people lost their faith. Some people backed out. But I persevered and I hung on and I kept trusting. And he wasn't fearing He wasn't upset. This was the end of his life. He could look back and say, you know what? I have no regrets. I lived my life for the right kind of purposes. And he was ready to go. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? He was confident in his future. That he would die, though he would die at the hands of Nero, yet he would be assured of God's welcome and a verdict of well done, good and faithful servant. And he said, um, now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to meet the Lord. I'm satisfied with what I've done. Assured of his eternal reward, uh, as all should be, who have put their faith and trust and long for his appearing. He felt like he had the ladder of his life against the right wall. And as he climbed, he knew he was in a right place. Let me ask you, what's the wall that the ladder of your life is leaned up against, that you're climbing? Uh, Is it the right one? Is it... Are you giving yourself to the right kind of things? Or when you stop and pause and evaluate, are you giving your life to things that are really not noble, not good, not appropriate, that are misplaced, and they're without eternal value? Well, we can live our lives two ways. One, we can live our life by default, or we can live by purpose. Uh, by, by default, we, we live unexamined lives, unplanned lives, careless lives, uh, lives that wherever the wind blows, that's where we go. Uh, whatever the, the prevailing, uh, whatever the prevailing uh, pressure is, we, we just succumb to that. We don't plan much. We're not thoughtful. We're not, we're not intentional. It reminds me of a Beatles song uh, from years ago called Nowhere Man. Some of you will remember it. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, doesn't know where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Nowhere man, please listen. You don't know what you're missing. Nowhere man, the world's at your command. He's as blind as he can be, just sees what he wants to see. Nowhere, man, can you see me at all. Nowhere, man, don't worry. Take your time. Don't hurry. Leave it all till somebody else lends you a hand. No man, nowhere, man. You can live by default, or you can live by design. 
You can live by purpose. But living by purpose doesn't necessarily mean that you're putting your, your ladder against the right wall. You can be deliberate and planning and intentional and strategic, and yet the goals that you pursue and where you're going and what you're giving yourself to are really in the final analysis misplaced priorities. And you get to the end of your life, and there's regret as you look back. And my friends, I, I want us all to be able to look back of our, at our life without regret. So how do we know when we're putting the ladder of our life against the right wall? How do we know when we're pursuing the right things, the good things? I think from God's perspective, he gives us some, uh, some understanding on this issue. In Matthew 22, we have a very interesting uh, time. Jesus had been confronted by religious leaders who really wanted to discredit him. And one after another, he took them on and shut them up. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't stand against his wisdom and what he'd said. And so hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that was one religious political party, the Pharisees, another one got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words... When I'm placing my ladder against a wall, what should that wall be? Where are we heading? What's the greatest command? What's the thing that's going to give guidance to my life? Let's continue. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I want to suggest to you, when you think about the wall that you're leaning, the ladder of your life on, where you're going, where you're headed. May I suggest to you that the, the first priority is to ask this question. Does it reflect my love for God beyond anything else? My loyalty to God, my commitment to God, my worship of God. Whatever I'm doing, can I say that I can do this loving God? That's what he says. That's what he calls us to do, to love God with the totality of our being, with with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength, everything in us. And, And if we're doing things that are motivated by love for God, what God deems worthy, things that have eternal value, we're going to be on a right track. Often we choose pursuits that in the final analysis are selfishly undertaken, you can, have, you can have everything. You can have fame. You can have uh, money. You can have re- uh, recognition. You can, you can be known for being the best at things. That's all fine. But at the heart of everything you do is love for God, something that is a priority in your life. Because only what's done for God has lasting value. That's why Jesus could say in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, He says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. His thing is this. You need to be thinking not just about what you accomplish in this life, but what has eternal value. 
And some of us are so anchored to this life and so fixated on this life that we don't realize that there's something more important. There's something eternal. And it's those eternal values that keep us grounded and on track with God. In our decision to... uh, in our. Excuse me, in our decision, God wants us to be motivated to choose what are His priorities out of love for Him, to show that He is truly number one in our life. He's the center of our life. He's the organizing principle of our life. He's the object of our love and our affection and our our, our devotion and dedication. And we can be motivated by money and fame and recognition for work in your field, and you can achieve all kinds of success. But none of that lasts in this life. You can't take it with you. That's all gone when you step out of this world. It's interesting. I, I, um, I'm not a fan of mixed martial arts, but I was intrigued by a story of Ronda Rousey, who was, um, was the, in her weight class, she was the champion of... Uh, of uh, her division in mixed martial arts. And she was on top of the world. Uh, she's an attractive girl, and she, was, uh, uh, she had taken out so many opponents, uh, one after another, after another, after another. And she fought in something that she should have won uh, to Holly Holmes, and she lost. She lost in like the second round. And uh, she was so despondent that she had thought about taking her life. She was so upset that she'd lost her title, her crown. Well, Holly Holmes became the next best thing. And she fought Misha Tate, and Misha Tate beat her. And so down went her dreams. And and, uh, Ronda Rousey decided that she was going to have another go at it. She'd gotten over that last last she she had trained and she went in the ring just this last week in the octagon and she was taken out in 48 seconds you know whatever success whatever fame you have can be fleeting i mean you could have something for a moment you can lose it all too but you don't lose the stuff that are are eternal value And the first guideline in figuring out where we place the ladder of our life is asking the question, does it reflect my love for God and my devotion to God totally in my life? The second guideline comes further in Matthew 22. The next, he says this, the second great commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would describe in a story what a person's neighbor was. The story was about this Jewish guy who was going from Jericho to Jerusalem. And in this trip, he was accosted by robbers who beat him, left him in a pool of blood, left him naked, took everything he had, his money and... and, uh, this guy uh, had some fellow Jews, some, some religious leaders, go by and see him. Uh, probably could see some, some, uh, some breathing and see a pool of blood and avoided and went around and left the guy there. And then the most uh, 
the most uh, unusual thing happened, that there was somebody who's really an enemy to the Jews, and that was Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews both lived in Israel, and they hated each other, and they treated each other with disdain. And this, this uh, Samaritan saw the guy in the pool of blood, got him, cleaned up his wounds, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, stayed with him, cared for him, uh, gave the, the innkeeper money to keep him and, and to get him back to health and strength and said, look, if he needs more, when I come back, I'll pay you more. Just take care of the guy. And Jesus said, you want to know what a neighbor is? A neighbor is anybody who's within proximity of you, who needs help, and, and you are able to provide that. And so here is, here is Jesus helping us understand priority in our life is to love God with all that we have and love people, love our neighbor everywhere. That neighbor is in our home. It's our parents. It's our children. It's our spouse. It's our extended family. It's the person who lives beside you. It's the person at school who, you're, who you sit beside in class. It's, it's the, uh, your co-worker. These people are all neighbors to us. And, and he says, if you want to live your life without regret, invest your life in people. Care for people. Who needs a word of encouragement? We're, we're surrounded by people all the time. Day in and day out, there are people. And God says, look out beyond yourself and, and, and see people who have needs around you and reach out to help them. Who needs a word of encouragement? Who's struggling? Who's, who's a mom who's just exasperated and, and, and has tiny little kids uh, and, and doesn't sleep through the night and is, is just on the edge? Who's somebody that could need help? Um, who's somebody on, on your work team that's going through a tough time? Who's going through a, a difficult financial time? A student that's failing Somebody who's all alone, a person who's in a nursing home, someone who's struggling with addiction. They're all neighbors. Invest your life in people. And we can all be so busy pursuing our dreams that we find in the final analysis that we're climbing a ladder that's on the wrong wall. We're blind to people. Uh, we're, we're investing in things that don't last. Things that don't stand up to the test. I must tell you that with, with a measure of shame, I think at times in my ministry, I've so invested myself in my ministry that I haven't poured as much time as I should have into my children. I mean, you, in, when you're in ministry, you think, well, I'm doing this for God, so I get a pass on that. Uh-uh. No, you don't. It's a priority in our lives. And God has situated us strategically around people, people whom he wants us to reach out to and care for and to leave a legacy. There was a woman in her 80s, her name is Grace. She was in my previous church, and Grace was, um, she was just one of the sweetest older ladies in our church, and um, she lived in uh, an apartment building that was largely seniors. But in this building, there was a, uh, a student. It was a, ch a Chinese a PhD student at Western University. And uh, they would meet in the laundry room. And Grace would talk to her, and Grace would invite her over uh, for uh, some, some tea and cookies. And, and Grace said, 
I want to, would you like to come to church with us? And much to her amazement, this young student said, yeah, I would. And, uh, and Juan Lid came to church with Grace. Grace didn't have a car. She had to get a ride. But she and some other ladies, somebody picked them up, and they brought Juan Lin along with her. And she came out week after week after week. For two years, I thought, I need to talk to this woman. Like, I see her. I know her name. I greet her. And she was always kind of a little bit, seemed to be just a little bit hesitant. Or, um, and then after about two years, Juan Lin came up to me and said, Pastor, I would like to be baptized and I said, well, that's fantastic. Let's talk about it. But it was a woman, an older woman in her 80s, who just reached out in love and provided a way and made an eternal difference in the life of someone. Well, we had just built a, a new church uh, previously in a previous pastorate. And I noticed um, that a young woman came in she came in with three children, a um, little boy, a little girl, and then she had uh, a little baby in one of the carriers. And she never let the kids out of her sight. They never went off to a children's program. They stayed with her. And after she was there for a little while, we had a, a newcomer's luncheon. And she signed up for the luncheon. And so as we went into the place we were having, a Gerda and I sat with Suzanne and her three children and had a, a nice time talking with her. It was probably a couple weeks after that that she made an appointment with me. Uh, she said, could I come and talk to you? And I said, absolutely. And she came and she began to tell me the story of her life. And it was, it was such a sad story. Here she was with three kids. She was a single mom. The father of the oldest had tried to kill her and the child. And uh, so there was a restraining order on him. And so I began to understand why she never let her kids out of her sight. They always had to stay close by. And, and she was struggling. She was struggling financially. She was struggling with the kids. And, um, and uh, as we began to talk, as she poured out her life, I saw how much hurt and brokenness there was. She said, you know what? When I was, when I was a little child of five and six... My grandma told me about Jesus. She used to tell me about Jesus, and she used to pray for me. And I just thought, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so messed up. Maybe Jesus is what I need. I remember my grandma telling me that. And uh, she told me that she went to some, some churches. Uh, and she said, I went in there, and I just didn't feel it was right. I didn't feel at home. I didn't feel... And she left. And she watched our church being built because she lived in projects uh, down from our church ways. And she saw that being built. And, and she decided, I'm going to try that church. And I don't know what it was about our church, but she felt welcome and she felt safe. And that day, she opened her heart to Christ. And I had the privilege of baptizing her and to, to make a difference there was a man in our church at that time who just lost his only daughter to cancer. Uh, she lived at home to die, and he and his wife cared for her, and he was absolutely heartbroken. And uh, I said to him, Bill, there's a little boy who has your name, and um, he doesn't have a dad figure in his life at all. 
And there's this family, and they're really struggling, a single mom. I wonder, Bill, if the love, you have so much love, such a capacity to love, and you're so heartbroken with your daughter's passing. Maybe, Bill, you could reach out to this little boy who has the same name as you. And he said, I'll give it a try. And he did. And once a week, he used to take little William out. And he used to take him on to events and used to get him some stuff. And, and it was such a blessing to see how he invested in this little child. And Suzanne had uh, a vehicle and it kind of was on its last legs and it died. And there was a businessman in our church and he said, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a vehicle. I'm going to have it safetyed and I'll make sure it's in good shape and she can have that car. And so he did that and reached out to help this family. And, and to see what God was doing was such a blessing. Folks, that's the kind of stuff that stands the test of time. That's the kind of stuff that lasts for eternity. That's the kind of thing that is worth investing your life in, in people. In people, that's what God wants. To make a difference in this world. It doesn't mean you can't have money. It doesn't mean you can't be rich. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It just means that God is in the center of it. And there's a concern for people as well. You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul would look at um, what people were building their life on in 1 Corinthians 3. And he said, you know, all that we build our life on, all that we do with our life is going to be subjected to a test by Christ. It's going to be a testing by fire. And he said, some of the stuff that you do in your life is going to be wood, hay, and stubble. And when you turn the fire to it, it burns up and it's gone. But some of it's going to be gold and silver and precious stones. And that stands the test of time. And, and it's so important that we're investing on thi- in things that will span the test of time. I want to tell you the story of a guy by the name of Teddy Stoddard. Teddy Stoddard was in grade five, and um, he was in Miss Thompson's class. And uh, Miss Thompson, at the beginning of the year, would tell the children, you know, children, I... You need to know I love you all the same. She said, I lie just like some teachers lie. I didn't love them all the same. In fact, I really didn't love this little boy, Teddy Stoddard. Teddy Stoddard um, sat in the front of her class. He was slumped in his desk. His hair was disheveled. He wasn't bathed properly. He didn't smell good. And... uh, Miss Thompson took some perverse pleasure when she could mark his things wrong and put an F on his page. Much to her shame, she would say. She went back and began to review the records. And the, rev- the records spoke of a little boy that was very bright and loved by his uh, fellow students. And uh, she looked at the record year after year. And then she got to third grade. And she said... 
he's a wonderful child, but he's struggling because his mom is, is dying uh, of cancer. And uh, the next year, his mother had died of cancer, and he's come into a shell and is inside himself and, and struggling and withdrawn. And uh, at this point, Miss, uh, Mrs. Thompson was ashamed of herself, ashamed of how she thought about this boy. And, uh, and at Christmas time, uh, the children bought presents uh, to Mrs. Thompson, nicely wrapped presents, and Teddy Stoddard brought a gift also. It, it was wrapped clumsily in brown paper, and when Mrs. Thompson opened the box, she saw a little bracelet with rhinestones with some of the rhinestones missing, and a little bottle of perfume with a quarter of the perfume left in the bottle. And uh, the children began to laugh, and she chided them, and she put the, put the bracelet on, and she put some of the perfume on, and she said how she loved it, how wonderful it was. When Teddy left that day, she cried and wept for an hour as she understood the pain of this little child. And on that day, she said she quit um, teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Instead, she began to teach children, to reach out to children, to realize that she was in a place, in a position where she could leverage uh, good for God. Next year, she found a note under her door from Teddy who said to her, she was the best teacher he had ever had. Six years went by, and then Teddy slipped another note under her door as he finished high school. You're the best teacher I've ever had. Time passed on, and uh, uh, four years passed, and he had become a medical doctor. And um, he sent a note to her uh, that he thanked her for what she meant in his life. His father had died, and he sent her a note. And he said, you know, I've met somebody, and the girl I'm going to marry, um, uh, we would love you to be a part of our wedding. In fact, Dad has died, and I would be honored if you would sit in the place where my mother would sit. And uh, Mrs. Thompson agreed and was happy to do that. She sat there, and she had that rain, rhinestone bracelet on, missing some of the stones, and she wore that perfume that reminded him of his mother. And she said, you are the best teacher I've ever had. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for helping me. That's, what, that's the kind of thing that God wants for his people. To know that we've invested our lives in putting him first and loving and caring for people and making a difference in our world. And I, I don't know where God has placed you, around whom he's placed you, but he's given you a responsibility to reach out to others and to help them. And, and, and uh, with all of what you can do, we all want to live life in such a way that we end up with no regrets, that we know that we invested ourselves in the right kinds of things. 
And I want to ask you a question. What's the legacy that you're leaving? What is it that you're doing that really counts, not just for now, but for all of eternity, so that you don't have to look back with regret and to say, you know what, man, I wished I'd reorganized my priorities in my life because the unexamined life is not worth living that way. And to do an inventory, to examine ourselves, and to live life without regret. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we, we pause and reflect on what's really important. The things that captivate us, the things that people will remember us for, or the things that, that we will stand and give account before you. And as we sit at the stand at, the, at the, the threshold of another year, another opportunity. Father, I pray that you would help us to think and consider what it means to live our life on purpose without regret, to invest ourselves in the right kinds of things and to know your blessing in that. And that if we could help somebody along the way, that we would be doing exactly what you called us to do for all of eternity. We would enjoy the blessings of what you have. For that we give thanks.